Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. 38. Together, we march on the garden. I have the spear. O'Malley has the knife. Everyone else carries a bone club. Everyone except for the kids. Kids? Is that what we should call them? That's what we were. How we thought of ourselves. But we're not. We are not kids. We are not teenagers. We are not adults. We are a mixture of all those things. We move as one, thanks to Bishop's ability to organize. My friends are both out in front and bringing up the rear. Between them, over a hundred white-shirted kids marching in three long, neat rows. Are we still afraid? Very. All around me, young faces etched with fear, but now other emotions as well. There is rage that they would use us up and cast us away, take over our bodies and make us just like them. There is a sense of belonging in that we all fight for each other as well as for ourselves, and there is the newest feeling of all. Hope, given to us by the promise of our own planet. We belong down there. It's what we were made for. We are trapped on a ship where monsters want to kill us. The monsters have been here a thousand years. Now that they know we are awake, they will find us. We are hungry, and in the one place we know of that has food, the monsters are waiting. They won't be waiting long. We will not be used. We will not let them change us. They think we are property? They are wrong. We march. Tracks in the dust lead us to the archway Gaston and Spingate discovered. It remains closed, stone halves pressed tightly together. I raise the spear. Everyone stops. I turn to face my people. Okariki, Johnson, Gaston, prepare the torches. Gaston and my fellow circles run forward. Johnson has a dozen long bones cradled in her arms. Okariki carries a bundle of black rags, discarded pant legs from the Circle Star boys. We won't have grease like we had when we first entered the dark section. These new torches won't last long. We'll have to move fast and hope we make it to the thicket tunnel before they burn out. They prepare ten torches, tying the fabric tight to the bone. Three for Bishop, three for Farrar, two for O'Malley, who will be up front with me, and two for Smith and Beckett, who will bring up the rear. I talk to a hallway full of faces. We don't have long before our light runs out. Stay close to the person in front of you. Ignore any side rooms. The circle stars will run ahead and make sure those are empty. I hope they are. If we have to fight before we reach the garden, we'll be in the dark for sure. The dark, if that happens, I know I won't be able to handle it. I will fall apart. For a moment, I am in my coffin again. The terror rolling over me along with that feeling of being trapped. Then I force it away. We'll make it in time. I won't be in the dark. I won't. I'll get these people where we need to go. I turn to Spingate. Open it up. She goes to work with the scepter. I stand in front of the door. Bishop and Elsefani press in on my right. Farrar, Visca, and Bauden on my left. Got it, Spingate says. 
and the door grinds open. Inside, darkness. We will make it in time. We will. Light the torches, I say. The scepter's flame flares. Each group of circle stars lights a torch, then rushes forward. I see them darting into dark rooms, darting back out, advancing down the hall. They will make sure Matilda's creatures aren't lurking inside, ready to reach out and grab us as we pass by. O'Malley on my right, his knife in one hand, two bone torches in the other. I wait until the circle stars are so far down the hall, I can barely see them. This is it, I say. Move fast, stay together. Spingate, do it. The end of her scepter sparks brightly. O'Malley touches his torch to the flame. Black fabric woofs to life. We run, so many of us. Our footsteps thunder off the stone walls. Behind me, I can hear kids crying. They're terrified and I can't blame them. We're marching them through torchlit darkness, making them run fast so that monsters they have never seen can't get to them. These kids have been awake for only a few hours. They barely know us, yet are forced to take what we say on faith alone. So far, at least none of them have had the courage to stand up to us. I'm sure that will come. I hope it comes, because if it does, it will mean we've reached a safe place where we have the luxury of letting them argue. Are we bullying these kids into doing what we say? Yes, we probably are, but it is for their own good. O'Malley's first torch sputters. He lights the second. I know that in the rear of our group, Smith is doing the same. Up front, Bishop and Farrar are already on their second torch, probably close to using their last. We are almost out of light. I wish Latu was here. She would have gladly fought at our side. She would have protected the kids. She would have done whatever needed to be done. Latu, Yang, Bello. When this is over, who else will be gone? Torchlight plays off the walls and the dead ceiling. We know where we are going, and it doesn't take long to get there. Finally, we see that the circle stars have stopped up ahead. We've reached the room with the thicket tunnel. Bishop faces me as if checking to see if I've changed my mind. I haven't. We will stick to the plan. Torchlight flickers against the red gray that coats him, glistens off the wetness of his white eyes. There is anger and determination about him, but also an air of sadness. He is leading us into battle, not because he wants to fight, but because he knows this must be done and that he is the best one to do it. He has taken life. Even though that life belonged to a monster, the act haunts him. The circle stars gather around me, all of them this time, seven warriors with red-gray faces ready to lead us in. We're almost out of torches, I say. Get into the garden and make sure it's safe for the rest of us to follow. If you see monsters, capture them if you can, but if you have to kill them to stay alive, kill them. Seven heads nod. They really all do look the same. If my people are a spear, the circle stars are the blade. Bishop shoves his bone club through the hole, then crams his way in. The twins follow him, then Farrar, Coyotl, Visca, and finally Bodin. The strongest of us have gone forward, but that doesn't mean the rest of us are weak. O'Malley's torch starts to flutter. I'll be in the dark again. I'll be trapped. A hand on my shoulder squeezing tight. 
O'Malley leans in close and whispers, hang on, Em, we're almost there, don't be afraid. I breathe in deep, hold it, let it out slow. We're not in the dark yet. I take my mind off it by talking, going over the last few elements of my plan. Smith, Beckett, I call out, get up here. The two slide through the lines of kids. They both hold bone clubs. Smith's thin face is set and stern. She's ready. Beckett looks like he might throw up. Keep the kids quiet and be ready to come when we call, I say. If the monsters attack, it's up to you to hold them off long enough for the kids to get through the thicket tunnel. Smith nods. Beckett is sweating. I know it's risky leaving only two people to protect the kids. Matilda could attack at any time. But we need everyone else up front, looking for the hole she used to enter the garden. I hear Bodden's voice from the other side of the door. Em, the way is clear. Thank goodness, I'll be in the light. I take a final moment to address my friends. Remember to stay in your teams of four. Be as silent as you can, because the monsters might not know we're here. If you find the entrance, shout it out. If any of you hear that shout, it means we're done being quiet. Get to that spot right away. If you see a monster with a bracelet, you must attack that one first. Do not hesitate. Does everyone understand? They all nod. They know this is their one chance to survive. They are as ready as they can be. I push my spear through the hole, then follow it. I crawl into the pig's thicket tunnel. My friends are right behind me. The curved roof's light beams down. The fist in my chest eases, then fades. At least I'm out of the darkness. I crawl out and stand under a fruit tree. It takes me a moment to spot the circle stars, even though they are quite close. Their red-gray bodies blend in with the trees and shadows, making them nearly invisible. I move left. My group moves with me, Spingate, Iramovsky, and Gaston. I kept Spingate with me because I feel a need to protect her, make sure nothing happens to her. Gaston won't leave her side, so I put him in my group rather than risking an argument in front of the others. As for Aramovsky, I can't trust him. I'm not letting him out of my sight. Bishop slides out from behind a tree. Without a word, he points to groups, then points where he wants those groups to go. He points at me, then to his chest, then to his right. As we planned, both of our groups will explore the area where Bella was taken. That is the most likely spot for Matilda's hidden entrance. Bishop's group includes Elsafani, of course, and also D'Souza, the circle girl. She holds her bone like she's afraid it will come to life and attack her. The four of them move quickly through the knee-high grass. My group follows. The light above and grass below gives way to tree shade and creeping vines. Then we slide into the thicker underbrush. Our feet crunch through brittle leaves rotting fruit and dried twigs, making it hard to move quietly. Up ahead, I can barely see D'Souza and can't see Bishop or the twins at all. We reach the garden's thicket-covered wall. This is where it happened, where the monsters took Bello away. The eight of us spread out, reaching hands through the thicket. The winding stems are so deep, I have to turn my head to the side, press my cheek into them for my fingertips to reach the wall. Somewhere nearby, perhaps, one of us will feel empty space instead of stone. M, a soft whisper, but it scares me so bad I yank my arm out, tearing the skin on thick vine stalks. 
It's Bishop. He moved up behind me, and I never heard him coming. My arm is scratched deep. A few drops of blood drip to the ground. He points at my spear. Use that instead, he says, then walks a few feet away and starts poking his bone club through the thicket. I look at my spear as if I didn't even know I had it. I push the spear point through the stems until it taps the stone wall. I try it again. It sticks in a vine somewhere I can't see. This is much better than reaching my arm in there. I look over at Bishop and smile. He smiles back, his white eyes and white teeth bright against the red gray of his caked on dust. A girl's scream from the right. Bishop turns and sprints toward it, plowing through the underbrush. Elsafani is right behind him. White-shirted D'Souza has a moment of indecision, unsure whether to go or stay. Then she chases after her group. This is it. We're going to fight. The thought of one of those things grabbing me, wrinkled black spider hands holding me down, it's almost enough to freeze me in place. Almost. This time, I won't let the fear stop me. I lock eyes with Spingate, Gaston, and Aramovsky. Spingate has the scepter. Gaston and Aramovsky hold thigh bones. The weapons look clumsy and awkward in their hands. Stay together, I say. When we see a monster, hit it as hard as you can. They nod, wide-eyed. In times of safety, Aramovsky might argue with me, but not now. Another scream, a boy this time, from far to our left, and another behind us, from somewhere out in the grass. We're under attack. Spingate turns in place, her hands clutching the jeweled scepter. She doesn't know which way to go, neither do I. I hear Bishop roar, hear the Elsafani twins let out a simultaneous boy-girl scream of rage. From all over the garden, the ash-faced warriors shout and challenge in anger, their noises joining howls of pain and fear. Doubt explodes inside me. I have chosen wrong. My plan was bad. I shouldn't have split us into groups. We need to be together, to fight together. Fear sinks talons into me, paralyzes me yet again. No, Matilda must not win, must not take even one more person. I am the leader, my people need me. I raise my spear high, my voice booms out louder than I could have ever imagined possible. Everyone, fight your way to me! Spingate, Gaston, and Aramovsky stare at me shocked. From across the garden, from all over the woods, the war cries of my people echo back. They heard me and are urging each other on. The thicket behind me rustles. Before I can turn, an arm snakes around my stomach, and a cold, bony black hand clamps down over my mouth. In that moment, I smell what is right below my nose gnarled flesh that stinks of rot and decay and something artificial. I'm yanked backward into the thicket. Woody stems scrape at my skin and pull my hair. I kick my legs hard, clutch at anything my fingers touch. Hands grab my feet, but these hands are warm, trying to pull me back into the light. There's a moment where I am motionless, a living rope in a game of tug of war. Then the warm hands slip off my feet, Vines and leaves fall away. I am through the other side. I am being dragged along a hard surface. Dark here, barely enough light to see the living shadows taking me away. My spear is gone. Attack, attack, when in doubt, attack. 
I grab the hand that covers my face and shove a rancid finger into my mouth. I bite down as hard as I can. Something brittle cracks between my teeth. The taste of death squirts across my tongue. I hear a scream that isn't human. The hand on my face lets go, but the one around my middle holds firm, and now there are two more arms clutching at me. One wrapped tight to my chest, and the other over my left shoulder. My fingers claw, my feet kick. Let me go, I'll kill you! I hear something burst through the thicket. I see the flash of the spear. The cold hands drop away. I scramble to my feet, ready to fight. I find myself standing face to face with Aramovsky. He holds the spear. The blade drips red-gray. At first, I think he will also stab me, but he is wide-eyed and terrified. His chest heaves. The weapon trembles in his hands. I turn and look at my attackers. There are two of them, creatures barely visible in this dark place beyond the thicket. Swirling red eyes stare out. The bigger of the two is bent over, clutching its leg. Red-gray squirts through skeletal black fingers, drips down to a metal floor. There was something familiar about that monster, but I can't place what. The other one presses its gnarled left hand hard against its wrinkled right shoulder. Red-gray oozes down its chest and arm. This monster is only a tiny bit shorter than me. Just one look, and I know who it is. I am staring at Matilda Savage. 39. It's so dim in here, I wonder if their red eyes can see what I can't. Why would creatures of the shadows need light? The one holding its leg, it seems to stare at us. Black hands slide free of the still bleeding wound, and it stands. So tall. No, it isn't staring at us. It stares at Aramovsky. The swirling red eyes change somehow. They soften. The creature reaches a gnarled, blood-coated hand toward him, not in aggression this time, not to grab, but with fingers outstretched. It reaches out like it wants to touch. Finally, it says in a dry voice that sounds much like cracking thicket branches. I have waited for so long. Aramovsky lowers the spear tip. His jaw hangs slack. He blinks slowly. His shirt is no longer neat and clean. It is torn, the white stained by spreading lines of red. He must have forced himself through the thicket, ignoring the pain. He fought his way in to save me. And now he has eyes only for the monster, the first living thing we've seen in this place that is taller than he is. You, Aramovsky says. I am, am I you? In that whispering question is the same tone of shocked recognition I heard in my own voice when I spoke with Matilda. Aramovsky is asking, but he already knows the answer. The mouthless nightmare nods. Come with me. The gods say it must be so. Aramovsky drops the spear. It clatters against the hard floor. My creator, he says, and steps forward. Is he crazy? Are they doing something to him to make him act like this? I grab Baramovsky's wrist and try to pull him back. The tall monster waves his fingers inward, a kind, inviting gesture. Come, it says. It is right for you to join me. Aramovsky acts like he doesn't even know I'm pulling on his arm. 
He steps toward the creature, dragging me along. Off to my right, I see a flash of movement. Matilda, reaching for my fallen spear. I let go of Aramovsky and launch myself at her, punching and kicking. My fist hits something soft, something that squishes from the blow. I hear my creator's cry of pain, and she falls away. I snatch up my spear. Its familiar solidity instantly comforts me. I point the tip at Matilda, hold it so close to her chest that we both know the message. If she moves, I strike. Her hands press to her right eye. Darkness and gnarled fingers don't completely hide the damage. Her eye used to bulge out. Now it sags like broken fruit. A thick yellowish-gray fluid seeps down her face, glistens in the dim light, gathering on the disgusting vertical folds that cover her mouth. I look back to Aramovsky. He stands in front of the tall monster. They embrace. White-shirted arms wrap around wrinkled coal-black skin. Wrinkled coal-black arms wrap around the bloody white shirt. Aramovsky rests his cheek on the monster's black chest. The thicket behind me suddenly rattles and shakes like it was hit by a storm. Something big and strong and heavy tears through it. A flash of gray and red, of muscle and scattering leaves. A thigh bone cuts through the air, a blur of white that passes right over Aramovsky's head and smashes into the monster's face. The thigh bone cracks in two, one piece spinning into the darkness, the other still held in Bishop's hands. The tall monster's legs go slack. It sags back, sliding out of Aramovsky's arms. It turns as it falls, landing face down. Bishop steps forward. He holds the broken bone in one hand. The jagged tip points down like the blade of a misshapen knife. Aramovsky looks dazed. He sees his creator flat on the floor, trying to crawl away. Bishop raises his bone dagger high. Aramovsky's hands shoot out to block the blow, but he is too late. The broken thigh bone punches deep into the black monster's back. Everything stops. Bishop's panting breath is the only sound. He is bleeding from the shoulder, from the forehead. His red blood runs thick trails through the dark dust that covers his skin. He stands, staring down, chest heaving, then grabs the bone and yanks it free. The tall monster trembles. With painful effort, it slowly rolls to its back. It ignores Bishop, stretches a shaking hand toward Aramovsky. So close, it says. The hand drops to the floor, limp. Aramovsky's monster is dead. I turn to face mine. Matilda hasn't moved, neither has my spear. If she dies, I am forever free. I press the spear tip forward, hands still covering her eye. She backs up until she bumps into a metal wall and can retreat no more. Her face isn't human, but I recognize her fear. Matilda is terrified. Like with Aramovsky standing at Latu's grave, her fear excites me. It feeds me. I feel it tingling across my skin and fluttering in my belly. This vile thing created me just so she could destroy me but I will destroy her. My hands tighten on the spear. All it will take is one strong thrust. She shudders. She is so afraid. She bleeds. My joy at her fear. It fades. It drains. She is me. No, she is not me. I am not her. A hand on my shoulder. 
I glance and see O'Malley. His knife, knife hand, and sleeve are soaked in red-gray. Red blood, his blood, spills down from a gash on his cheek to stain the collar of his white shirt. Em, don't, he says quietly. We need her. It takes me another second to realize he's really there, not a product of my imagination. I keep the spear tip pressed against Matilda's chest. My eyes have adjusted. I can see more now. My people are in here with us. Bishop and his dust-faced warriors. El Safani, Spingate and Gaston, Coyotl and Okariki, Cabral and Borgigan, all of them. Farther back, Smith and Beckett, and all around them, a countless cluster of terrified children. I'm almost afraid to believe what I see. We made it? O'Malley nods. The monsters attacked. They didn't have bracelet weapons. I don't know why. They tried to grab us. Because we were in groups of four, everyone was able to fight them off. We killed some of them. It was bad, Em. He closes his eyes for a moment. We were bad. When he opens his eyes, I see something in his face, an expression I haven't seen before. Whatever he experienced out there in the garden, whatever he did, he's trying to push it away. The monsters ran, he says. We went back and got the kids. Your plan, Em? Your plan worked. My people are alive. Did we lose anyone? He nods. Harris, a circle. He's dead. Harris. All I knew of that boy was that he didn't seem to trust me. I don't think I even had a chance to talk to him. And now he's gone. I notice Bishop watching me. He's still panting. Is that from exertion or the emotions of killing yet again? I face Matilda. You've lost, I tell her. You will take us to Bellow, then to the shuttle. Her one eye glares out. She's trembling, clearly in great pain. But she stands up straight like a leader should. She refuses to back down. I will not take you anywhere. And your friend Bello is dead. You are too late. She says it mockingly, accusingly, as if it's my fault Bello is gone. Bello didn't hurt anyone, didn't even argue with anyone. A boulder of anger tumbles through me, rolling and unstoppable. This can't be, it can't. I lean in so close I smell Matilda's rotten stink, I move the spear tip up to where her throat should be. I press the point into the disgusting folds of skin. Liar, I whisper. You tell me where Bello is. Then you take us to the shuttle, or I will end you. My creator slowly shakes her head. You are me, and I am you, she says. You know I am telling the truth. Tears well up in my eyes, even as my fury grows. I'm almost sure Matilda is telling the truth, almost. I could keep asking her, I could torture her. But if Bello really is dead, then every minute I spend here is a minute the rest of my people are in danger. The Zolodal is massive, we know nothing about it, while our enemy knows every inch. My people will not be safe until they are on Omeokan. I know I will hate myself for this decision, but there is no choice, for the second time, I choose the safety of the group over the life of just one person. The shuttle, I say. Take us to it. Bishop runs to my side. Em, no. We have to find Bello first. This thing is lying. Bello can't be dead. She can't. Be 
quiet, I say in a voice not so different from Matilda's. Bishop's face grows hard, icy. He stands too close, this angry man, painted dark red-gray and streaked with blood. His fists clench. I see his pulse dancing in his temples. I am aware that the others are watching. O'Malley, Spingate, Gaston, and Aramovsky, Baden and Coyoto, and all the rest. I'm aware of that. I sense it, but my world has narrowed to a single point of focus. Bishop. I stare straight into his dark yellow eyes. Step back, I say. The decision is made. Maybe he will hate me. Maybe the others will too. But the group's safety matters more than Bellow's life. And our survival is infinitely more important than what the group thinks of me. Bishop's nose flares and his lip curls. He steps back. I focus my attention where it belongs, on my creator. Matilda's one good eye sparkles. Very good, little one, she says. You project such authority, as I did when I was your. I push the spear tip a tiny bit farther. The point pokes into her diseased flesh, cutting off her worthless words. The shuttle, I say again. Take us there or die. Matilda stays so very still. No, little one, she says. I know who I was at your age. I know you better than you could ever know yourself. You can't murder me. I told myself that when I saw her. I would kill her. I want to push the blade into her throat. I want to feel her terror again. Maybe hear her beg. But my arms refuse to obey. She's right. I can't do it. But I have to get my people to safety. The monsters could be regrouping. They will come at us again, and this time, they might use those bracelets. If you don't show me where the shuttle is, then you pay for what you have done to us, I say. Maybe you're right. Maybe I can't kill you. Good thing for me that I don't have to. Bishop, take care of this. In the dim light, Bishop smiles. He is angry and frustrated. The chance to unleash his rage on a target, any target, seems to satisfy him in a deeply wicked way. Bloody bone dagger clutched in his right hand, he steps closer. She looks at Bishop, then at me, then at him again. He raises the bone. Matilda lifts both hands up, palms out, as if that will stop the blow. The ruin of her eye gleams wetly. I'll take you. I'll take you to the shuttle. I put a hand on Bishop's chest. His skin is hot to the touch. He looks at me. His face slowly returns to normal. He lowers the weapon. Matilda trembles uncontrollably. She is alone and at our mercy. Bishop, I say, give this thing one chance. If she doesn't take us to the shuttle, or if you think she's tricking us, kill her. He nods. I face my creator. You will never have my body. So either take us to the shuttle or die in the body you have. She nods, her shoulders droop and her head hangs down. I do not know how I know, but this monster's will has finally broken. We have won. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. 
Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.